tonight, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1. As we kick off the new year, our first Bible study, having just finished the book of Genesis, we now embark on the life of Moses, a study and a look at the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 1, tonight I am going to give a, a brief intro to the life of Moses. As we've been studying the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch, also the Torah, according to the Jewish religion. And it's simply the first five books of the Bible. We get that word Pentateuch from the Greek word Pentateuchos, meaning a five-volume scroll. And that's literally what it was, this five-volume scroll, including the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I remember growing up, those were the first uh, five books that were the easiest to remember. And then after that, we started to get a little fuzzy as we were trying to recite all the, the Bible books. But Exodus, one of the reasons I'm excited to jump into this book is because its theme, the theme of the book of Exodus is that is, it is a book of redemption. Being that our church is Redeemed Church Fellowship, I was excited to dive in and discover that the story of redemption, the account of redemption in the life of the Israelites is something that we can learn from and apply it to our lives. The author, of course, is it's Moses. And Moses is a man who we've heard a lot about, even in secular culture they know about Moses. There's movies made about this man. In relation to the first five books of the Bible, Moses. We see him in the book of Genesis. He is a historian documenting the origins of life, the origins of sin and the plan of redemption that God had for us. We see Moses in the book of, of Exodus as a deliverer, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. In the book of Leviticus, we see Moses as a mediator between God and the children of Israel. In the book of Numbers, we see Moses as a leader. Now, as he's there with them in the wilderness. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses as a preacher, as he's preaching to the Israelites, the laws and the writings that God commanded him to. We can take a look at the book of Exodus and divide it up, Moses' life, into three portions. You see, Moses lived to be 120 years old. And each of his three portions of life, each 40 years that he had, was a different season. See, the first 40 years of Moses' life, he was a prince in Egypt. And then from there, he became 
a shepherd in the desert. And for the next 40 years of his life, he was just leading sheep on the backside of the mountain in the desert. And then the last 40 years of Moses' life, he became a deliverer. You see, God uses anyone he desires. One of the lessons from Moses' life was that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody as a prince. And then he spent the next 40 years of his life finding out that he was a nobody. Learning he was a nobody on the backside of a desert just guiding sheep. And the last 40 years of Moses' life, he learned what God can do through a nobody who submitted to him. Now, God used Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. You don't need to turn there. It speaks of Moses' faith. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. You see, Moses, as we're going to learn, he went through all kinds of craziness, going from living a, a luxurious life to the feeling he was called by God to saying no to the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian way and following the one true living God. And then enduring all of that lifestyle that he was surrounded with, but still seeking after God. Now, something to note is that between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, there is actually a 400-year gap We even know the dates of when Exodus took place. It was between 1445 B.C. through 1405 B.C. Now remember, back then the calendar actually counted down, not up. And Moses would then appear after that 400-year gap as just this baby boy not knowing that God was going to call him to such an awesome calling of of redemption. But Abraham knew a little bit about what would happen to the Israelites for 400 years. Even though he was far away from that time period, remember God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13, God told Abraham, he said, no, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God prophesied, told Abram of what was going to happen to the Israelites 
when they would be enslaved by Egypt. Now, the word exodus, literally translated, it means the way out. And the purpose of this book is to give an account of how God redeemed Israel. That word redeemed, it means to buy back, to buy, to purchase. In Exodus chapter 6, we read a concerning redemption. One of these themes, it says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from your bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great judgments, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. See, God delivered Israel out of slavery. He delivered them out of Egypt in order so that they can enter into that covenant with him as his people. And he would then use them, those Israelites, as an example to the world of who he was and the nature of salvation and holiness and redemption. See, in that same way that God delivered the Israelites, God can deliver you from trials, from fear, from anxieties, from worried, from sickness, from pain. God has, he's all-powerful. So we look at this plan of redemption. You see, it's important to study the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament and looking at the Pentateuch, we wouldn't get a, a full understanding of how important God's plan for redemption is and how beautiful and miraculous it is. Let's begin with Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It said, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Now, at the beginning of, of verse 1 right there, it says, now. Not now, it might as well have be said, and these are the names of the children of Israel. Because remember, the Bible, when it was written, it was written in scrolls. The chapters and the divisions, the verses of the Bible, they weren't there when it was originally written. It was just a long scroll. The numbers and the chapters were added on years, many years later, to help us to pinpoint verses and portions of the scripture. But at the end of Genesis 50, verse 26, says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel. Look at verse 2. Reuben, Simeon, a Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. 
So again, this is, we left off in Genesis with Joseph and his family. They pass away. And this is some 400 years later. It says in verse 7, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. See, Exodus 1 verse 5 was referring to the 70 people who went with Jacob to Egypt. But now in verse 7, what we 400 years later, it talks about this mass population growth. They were having babies were popping up left and right because at the end of their exodus, when they leave, the exodus tells us that there are 603,000 men listed that were above the age of 20. Now that's just the men that were counted. So it doesn't count the women and the children and those who were under the age of 20. And when you calculate what that would have looked like, on average, you get somewhere close to 3 million people who left Egypt in this exodus. Now that's like a double the population every 25 years. So they took seriously, be fruitful and multiply, as God told them. In verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Now, something we learn of, of Pharaoh here, which you could actually look him up in secular history, but he was afraid of them leaving Egypt. He thought if the Israelites, because they were so abundant, left that he, his culture would be under attack. And he feared that another civilization, if they came to war against him, that the Israelites would join that nation so that they can leave. They could fight and then be free of him. So because of this fear, which Pharaoh had, in verse 11 we read, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. In mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all the earth service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now notice Pharaoh and the Egyptians began to persecute the Israelites. And I believe that that persecution was satanic in nature. See, Satan is always trying to thwart the plan of redemption for the world. 
But notice how the Israelites, the harder that their taskmasters were towards them, the more abundant they became, the more children they had for some reason. Oftentimes, we read throughout scripture and throughout church history that persecution brings about growth. You see, when the church was in prosperity, it led to weakness and compromise, division. But under persecution, the church flourished. They grew strong. When do you see yourself really getting close to God? Is it not when you're in a trial? When all of a sudden all your distractions of the pleasures of this life are taken away and you're focused on a trial? Isn't that when you realize, oh my gosh, you just need to focus fully on God? Who cares about who's winning in the sports team? Who cares about what's on TV? You need God to help you with that. And you draw close to him. You're, you're in your word and you want to hear from him because you need answers to the problems that are happening in your life. And that's an awesome benefit and grace that God has for us. But how sad if that's the only time that we turn to God. How sad is that if, if that's the only time that we're obedient to God. May we be obedient to God in every season of our life. Regardless of the result. God desires for us to be close to him. And God will use that furnace, so to speak, in our lives, in our hearts, so that he can be shown to be strong. Remember when Paul had that infirmity, whether it was physical or emotional or spiritual, we're not sure, but there was something that plagued him constantly. And he hated it. He knew it. He said it was from a, a messenger of Satan came to buffet him. And he asked God three times to take that infirmity away. But God responded to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. It says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in need, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And isn't that often how things are in the spiritual realm? So opposite to what the world is. When we're weak, that's when God shows himself to be strong through us. So the Israelites now, they're experiencing this persecution and they're growing. They're having more children abundantly. And then in verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shephira, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, 
and see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now these two Hebrew women mentioned here, these midwives, they weren't the only midwives for all of the Israelites. They probably were the leaders of the midwives. Their names literally translated mean beauty and splendor. And they're ordered to kill the male firstborn sons. And this was a a tool, a a method, a, a harsh cruelty that Pharaoh was using to weaken and practically destroy the people of Israel. It's satanic. It's demonic. You see, Satan is always trying to seek to kill the line of the Messiah of God's plan for redemption. And it it does remind me of today with a a pro-choice movement of killing innocent children. You see, we we as believers are pro-God, we're pro-life. But there is a satanic plan out there using to, to kill the innocent. In verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. It's better to obey God rather than man. That's what these midwives were doing. They said, no, we're not going to listen to Pharaoh here. It reminds me of the apostles in the book of Acts. When Peter and John were told not to speak anymore and preach the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, it says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You see, we must obey God rather than man. Now, respectively, with that saying that, in Romans 13, we're called to obey the government and honor civic rulers. In Romans 13, verse 1 and 2, let me read this to you. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I can't help but think of what's happening today in our capital. Despite your political views, when God places that person in office, everything's complete and done, and we don't have that say in it. We need to submit. We need to obey God. It's tragic what is taking place in our country, and we need to pray that Jesus Christ would impact hearts. 
and that the, the rioting would, would stop. I digress. Now, even as we are to remain subject to governing authorities, let me not leave without saying, however, we are never called to put government in the place of God. If the government tells us to do something against God's will, we are to obey God first. So you really need to ask God for discernment in your life on the platform that he's given you. Whether he's given you a platform to speak with people or not, on choices to make. May we be like Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. Those men who were facing the fiery furnace when they were told to worship the great idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And they said, no, we're, we're not going to obey you over God. And so the, he threw them in the furnace and God was with them there in the fire. And the only thing that got burned was the ropes and the, their, their bonds. And they came out and they were free. They didn't even smell like smoke anymore, the Bible teaches. Because there was another in the fire with them who looked like the Son of God. You see, in trials, God is with you. So if you're facing that trial today and you realize you have a choice of honoring God or living in fear and, and sinning, disobeying the Lord and obeying man over God. I pray that God would just empower you by the Holy Spirit to do so, to follow after God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Now these midwives, as they feared God, and they did not kill these males who, got, who Pharaoh wanted to kill, it says in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are, they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dwell, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So now Pharaoh is saying, okay, the midwives aren't doing it. I'm just going to make this decree that people need to have their sons killed. Now, what is pretty cool in this portion is how the midwives, they gave this reason to Pharaoh as to why they were not killing the firstborn child. Now, they could have been lying to Pharaoh, saying, oh, well, the... Israelite women, they're, they're so lively, and as soon as the, the baby pops 
out there or they're having these kids and we're, we didn't get there in time. And then they're, they're back to work and they're just going about their life. So we don't get there in time. And the child is placed in safety and we can't get to them. Now they could have said that and they could have been lying or it could have been a truth. And people have looked at that and said, well, were they lying? Is it, was it wrong that they lied? Well, if they lied, they were doing it to save the child. But if they weren't lying, if it was the truth, then it could have been. Nonetheless, God blessed them. You see, God doesn't punish them, but God blesses them for this action. He gave them households. So what the situation really was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have all that answers. Uh, you could ask, you and I can ask God when we're in heaven. Continuing on, we're going to see how far we get of chapter 2. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months See, Moses is this beautiful little boy the Bible talks about. You know, sometimes I look at baby pictures and I'm just like, the face only a mother could love. But sometimes little babies are pretty cute, even right away. And it's like, wow, God, like, you made this baby Moses cute and beautiful. And his mother would not kill him. She wouldn't depart from him. She loved him. So she hid him. And then in verse 3, it says, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. She daubed it with asphalt and pitch, but the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So what does Moses' mom do? She fixes an ark for him. This is interesting because this is the second time that the word ark is mentioned in the Bible. And Moses will be saved by it. Israel will be saved from Pharaoh by Moses. You see, God has his plan for salvation. He had it when Noah's ark was built. He had it for Moses and he had it for the Israelites and God has it for you. God has a plan for your life of salvation, of redemption, of a purpose-filled life on this earth. May we trust in it. Submit to it. In verse 4, it says, And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Can you imagine having to depart from your little baby boy and just, it's your last ditch effort of a hope that he will survive. You're, you're not going to follow Pharaoh's orders. You're giving, you're submitting to God and you're trusting in him and you're just praying that God just do a miracle. So the sister is watching now as Moses is going down the river. It says in verse 5, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark coming among the reeds, 
she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. You see, what I see here is the preservation of God. The sovereignty of God. That God had a plan for Moses' life. And when God has a plan for your life, you're invincible. Until you fulfill that plan, until you have fulfilled that calling, when you're abiding in Christ, you're invincible. God desires for you to fulfill something. He's going to get it done by you. And we worry and we stress and we try to do things in our own strength. Rather than letting the Spirit just lead and guide us and waiting upon Him. See, God's sovereignty, it's His providence in action. Those divine appointments just happening after the sequence of events in your life. That God knew every reason of why you were born where you were born. Why you had the family that you had. Why certain things happened that were even bad in your life what he was allowing to come forth when you submit to him, when he makes you into something new, a a brand new person, a newborn Christian, submitted to God. May we trust in God's sovereignty, in God himself. In verse seven, after the maiden picks up this little Hebrew baby. It says in verse seven, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, how cool is this? You're thinking for a moment at first, I might, this might be the last time I'm about to see my baby boy. He goes down the river. God allows that ark to fall into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter sees him and has compassion on him. And then, Moses' sister happens to be there. She's, she was watching what was going to happen to the ark. And she goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, do you want me to get a, a, a wet nurse for, for the baby to look after him? And she's like, yeah, yeah, why don't you do that? And then Pharaoh's daughter basically asks for Moses' mother to be paid to take care of him. Now, God's ways here are shown to be way better than what we can plan or think. You know, sometimes in our life, we've got pursuits that we want to fulfill. And we have desires, callings. And when we are thinking of all the different ways of how we can execute and and 
perform the task. Sometimes we get off of, of God's track, off of his timing. But how much better is it when God does it divinely, intervenes, just like here? Because then you don't have to have that struggle in your heart. You can rely on God. And then when you don't have that struggle, it keeps you from getting into sin, from missing the mark. In verse 10, it says, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. And Moses, his, his name literally means drawn, drawn out. And Moses would be raised in a Hebrew household by his mother, as well as an Egyptian one, which produced in Moses a unique character. You see, Moses had the lessons that a Hebrew child would have, the lessons of learning about Jehovah God, the all-becoming one, and at the same time, know and understand the ways of the Egyptians. And Moses would not depart from following after the one true God. That has a lot to say about the Hebrew, the Jewish religion. You see, they, they trained their child. They trained their children to, to walk in God's ways. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a, a common tradition that when children were born to Israelites, that the first words that a mother would whisper to that child would be, Jehovah is God. And it's true. You see, I know from my own life that being raised in a, a Christian home and going to church every Sunday with my parents, my family, I learned the stories of, of Jesus. I learned the Bible. And though I did depart from the way, though I, I completely rejected God, and went to the world and sinned because I found that the world was empty and was not able to have me have contentment or peace or joy. I knew where to go back to. So I did go back to God, and that's something true. If you're listening tonight and you have a, a wayward son or daughter, continue to pray for them. Continue to love on them. You know, there's different situations where, you know, sometimes when the, the child is older, you need to, to learn to ask the Holy Spirit to give you patience and guidance. But for those young children, it's so important to pour into them the stories of Jesus, of his disciples, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. VeggieTales was a common uh, cartoon in my household growing up. 
we learned a little bit about Moses's upbringing and where it led him to in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. For by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So you see, Moses, because he was trained in the ways of God by his mother, he didn't forsake that path when he grew older. And then in verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his brethren so he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand now Moses because he had this upbringing in the Jewish religion, he had this sense of call in his life. He saw that the Israelites were in bondage and in slavery to Egypt, and he knew that was his culture. He knew that was his family. So he had this sense of destiny. He had this sense of what he felt was going to be redemption for the Israelites, and he felt that he can lead the Israelites to freedom, to liberty. And then as he saw this Hebrew who was being harshly beaten by an Egyptian, he looked this way and that way. No one was there. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't look up. He didn't look to God. He just saw no one, no human beings are watching me. I'm going to murk this foo and I'm going to get away with it. And he failed. He didn't get away with it. He buries this guy in the sand. And it's quite interesting that because he didn't wait for God to do the work, he tried and failed, bearing this one Egyptian. It says in verse 13, And when he went out a second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So after Moses kills this guy, he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. The next day he sees these two Israelites fighting amongst, amongst each other. And he's like, hey, why are you guys fighting? We're supposed to be brothers. 
And one of them says, whoa, who are you, a judge over us? Like, we saw what you did with that Egyptian yesterday, how you murdered him. Are you going to do the same to us? And suddenly fear came into Moses' heart. He knew that he had been seen. He was made. They caught him. He would have to flee. You see, because what Moses failed to do was to look up at God. And what he tried to do was to liberate the Jewish people. And when he tried in his own strength, as far as he got was bearing an Egyptian in the sand, which he failed at doing that because they found out about it. But years later, when Moses is finally submitted to God, he would learn that when God takes a hold of somebody's life, that through Moses, God buried the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. See, that's the power when you have God in your life versus when you try to do things on your own strength. You see, the Israelites did fail to recognize that Moses was the deliverer. They had no idea that God would use him as a deliverer. But it wasn't time yet. I think too often we don't wait for God to do the work. I think too often we get ahead of God. May we wait upon God, upon his timing, so that his spirit can lead us. Rather than us, rather than our own plans, it's so much better when it's God's plan. When you're living that purpose-filled life, you are content, you are joyful, there's peace. We get robbed of our peace, we get robbed of our joy when we don't wait upon the Lord. And sure, there's things in our life, pursuits and callings and ministries that we want to get involved in and it looks good on the outside. But we need to ask if that's where God wants us. Sometimes we try to hold on to things rather than letting them go. Sometimes it's even ministry. I've been taught that when you have a ministry and you're trying to have all these programs that you can keep a ministry alive so that it doesn't die and you're striving to keep something alive that God just desires to have a natural death. You see, sometimes when we let that thing go, whatever that thing is, that pursuit in our life, we realize, wow, God wanted me to let that go so that he can bring in this, his plan. And then the contentment is there. The Bible teaches us godliness with contentment is great gain. So now because Moses murdered this Egyptian guard, He then has to flee. And now the account will end here for this evening that Moses flees to Midian, the backside of this mountain, and he sits down by a well. But may we take hold of the beginning of this plan of redemption. You see, God desires... that you live your life not for yourself, but that you live your life unto him. It's the purpose of our creation. 
in Revelation at the end. The Bible says that we were made for God's good pleasure. You see, sometimes we try to do things our own way and have our own life, and we lose it. But when we give up our life, we gain true life. This plan of redemption in your life, perhaps 2020 was a year where you felt you got robbed. Spiritually, emotionally, literally. God has his plan of redemption for you. And may you see the goodness in the land of the living, as the Bible teaches. Now, God doesn't promise us a prosperity doctrine of money and finances and wealth. And you know what? Sometimes God leads us into deserts and wildernesses. But when you're with God, there is that joy that cannot be taken from you. You see, the things this world has to offer can be taken from you. The eternal perspective shows us that God, from the beginning of time, sent his son to this world, had a plan to die for your sins. Sin came into the world. We read about that in Genesis. It separated us from God. So, But God already knew. He knew about those mistakes in our life. He knew about sin in our life. And I love how the Bible shows us, proves to us, that all things work together for good, that God is allowing his sovereignty, showing us that step by step, he's preparing us for eternity with him. So may you walk in redemption this week. May you walk knowing that God has a plan for you. That the thing that you're praying over, the thing you're struggling with, the call, that he's going to bring that. Let him bring it. Don't do it yourself. Submit to God. Grow in his grace this week. And live out that plan of redemption. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We pray and we ask, Father, if we have gone ahead of you, Lord, if we have not waited upon you, but try to do things in our own strength. Forgive us, Lord. Father, may your word, Father, just come to life in the truth that all things work together for good. May we not look back, Father, but just continue forward, Father, seeking you. Father, may our lives, Father, just be a life of redemption by the blood of the Lamb. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Sunday morning, we're going to be back uh, 
11.30 my backyard as we study the book of Luke. So we hope to see you there. We're always available for prayer. If you'd like to message or call us, feel free to do so. We love you.